friends, countrymen, Ontarians, welcome to the Wild Ontario Podcast, episode number five. We are talking to Ontario's own man, not Robert Downey Jr., somebody much cooler, Nate Terbrack. This gentleman is involved in the giant refurbishment of Sault Ste. Marie's steel mill, Algoma Steel. It's a giant industrial complex. We talk about the three big industrial powerhouses in Ontario, Hamilton, Sarnia, and Sault Ste. Marie. And how do you make steel? Ontario is a steel powerhouse. Um, What are these new electric arc reactors? They claim they could take a million cars worth of greenhouse gas emissions off the road every year. What about the poisonous air that's giving cancer to everybody in Hamilton and the Sioux? Is that going to help with that? We talk about a bunch of fascinating stuff. Green hydrogen. We talk about electric cars. We talk about wind power, modular nuclear nuclear, uh, power in Ontario, and the full gamut. So a fascinating conversation about the environment, human health, and Ontario's mighty industrial capacity. So enjoy this episode with Nate Terbrack. Nate, great great to talk to you, my friend. Welcome to the uh, Wild Ontario podcast. And uh, yeah, man, so you are, you are a steel man. You're a steel expert. Is that correct? Sort of. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and like, I'm not a metallurgist. Um, I, I've, uh, I'm an electrical technologist by trade and the work has basically just taken me into steel industry. Um, we do, uh, I'm business development manager for an engineering firm and our big market is Canadian and, and North American steel. Um, so, you know, not not working in the mills, but uh, you know, at arm's length, uh, I don't think I'd be able to deal with the the heat of the mills. To be honest with you, it's a uh, demanding work to work in a steel mill. I can freaking imagine, man. I can imagine. So the, you're my fifth guest on the podcast now, and every guest so far, the first question I like to ask them as a bit of a humorous start is, um, if you had to be killed and eaten, asshole first, eaten alive by a predatory animal. In Ontario, which animal would you choose and why, my friend? I definitely go with like a fox. Um, <laughs> I foxes are are honestly like my favorite animal. Um, I have a, a a Shiba Inu, and she I I always get oh she looks just like a fox. Um, there's just something about like you know the common red fox that uh, that I enjoy. Um, you know the 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 cunningness the the. Uh, um the personality of them i just feel like you know it'd be a slow death but at least i'd get to hang out with a fox for a few hours because maybe even a few days because i'm not exactly the smallest person (laughs) (laughs) i was not expecting that answer man you're the first person that said a fox so what do some other people say mainly it's like mountain lions and bears really okay yeah no one said wolf like gray wolf you know i guess maybe you could say a wolverine but uh or a polar bear right i guess up yeah. in hudson bay but dude a fox yeah that would be pretty painful man unless it's like a group of foxes maybe yeah i i would i just think like the you know being uh hanging out with a fox would be cool um we actually i was up uh, on the south branch of the magnetowan river on the weekend and we saw a black bear came out right on shore while we were paddling past it and uh, my dog just, uh, you know, did what she was trained to do and scared it off. So that's pretty, amazing, man. I was pretty pumped, I, I, but like, I was disappointed that it startled so quickly when, uh, when Chicago started to bark at it, at it. And, uh, cause I wanted a better look. I just saw the head of it, but I was like, oh man, but it was, it spooked off very quickly. So 
That's amazing. So did you did you see how big it was or was his body concealed by foliage? Uh his body was concealed by foliage, but I saw his head and it was uh it was a good size. Yeah, I I bet you it was it was probably probably in the 300s, maybe 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 pushing 400. Like it was a, it was a big head and we were probably oh 10 meters away from it. Oh my god. Yeah. We were we were paddling up the the river in a canoe and uh, I heard we heard rustling and I look over and I see the the foliage move and then suddenly the head comes out and you know dog starts barking and it took off and I was like damn didn't that's, even get time to get out the camera or anything so That's so cool man they're so elusive you know because in Ontario the forest is so thick it's hard mm-hmm. to you basically got to bump into them like you did Yeah there's no kind of, you know, a lot of open territory like there is out west where you can maybe see for a few hundred meters and see one off in the distance, right? That just doesn't yeah. happen in Ontario. So we were up in Tomogamy uh, the first week of July, which bug season this year was absolutely brutal. Um, and it was right like at the end of the the fire ban. And we pulled up to the, the campsite um, at like nine o'clock at night. And um, I didn't have time to like survey. I didn't really care much for the fire pit or anything like that. So I set up our tent, cooked dinner real quick, and then, you know, crawled into bed. And uh, at probably about three or four in the morning, I woke up, the dog was barking. And uh, lo and behold, there was a black bear uh, rummaging through the, the fire pit. Um, apparently, people have, were using the fire pit as a garbage can, even during a fire ban. Um, so in the morning I went over and I looked around and there was food scraps and everything like that in the fire pit. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like we're in a fire ban and you're using it as a trash bin. Like, come on. So dude, unreal. Yeah. So I've had two bear, bear encounters this year so far. That's impressive, man. That's impressive. I mean, considering I'm from Hamilton, like, I think that's a good number. (laughs) That's right. Holy cow, man, dude, that's wild. Yeah. And, you know, people always I got into an argument with one of my friends online recently about black bears, you know, not being dangerous because I brought up this story about Bass Pro Shops and the guy behind the gun counter, you Mm -hmm. know, is buying bear spray. And he's like, what do you need this for, man? I'm like, well, black bears. He's like, you don't need it for black bears like black bears are harmless. And then I looked up the data online. Right. And there's been 17 people killed by black bears since 2010 in North America. And it's really interesting. In most of those cases, those people have actually about three quarters of those cases the people were partially or fully eaten by the bear. Um, so it's like, yeah, black bears can be, you know, cute and you yell at them and they run off, but they can also eat you asshole first alive. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, um, whenever I tell people I'm going camping, they're like, Oh, are you, you know, aren't you afraid of the bears? And it's like, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm a 300 pound man. I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than the average bear. I do. I think I can fight a bear. No, but I know for a fact I'm more dangerous than it because, you know, I could start a forest fire that destroys its habitat. I could drop something that it eats and poison it. You know, like it's just, I, the thing that I, my approach to bears is you got to respect them, right? You, You have to be respectful of them. Like, do I get a little anxious thinking, oh man, there might be a bear. Yeah. But you know, I, I hang my food in a tree, you know, I, I don't, I don't, take unnecessary risks and and people like my wife who they don't do backcountry camping they uh, uh they just don't get that you know if you respect the bears the bears will respect you and uh you know you don't really have much to fear about but don't don't like not take precautions right <laughs> like 
So very well said, my friend. Exactly. Like it's no reason not to go out into the backcountry mm-hmm. of Ontario. You know, 80 plus percent of our province's uh crown land. There's so much beautiful, you know, places to to explore. And as long as you're respectful and you you're you're safe, you're probably not gonna have a problem. But don't be yeah, that exactly. one statistic. Yeah, that, exactly. That guy went out, no bear spray, no bells, you know, no nothing, and then they got they got eaten. But uh that's awesome, man. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, you know, I uh I discovered you, Nathan, because I made this, you know, post about um this new electric arc furnace at the Algoma steel plant. And, you know, I had gone to Sault Ste. Marie for the first time in my life last summer. And I was mm-hmm. like, damn, like that is a huge industrial site. I did some research and I'm like, man, I had no idea Sault Ste. Marie is like, as far as I understand, it's the second biggest steel production center in, in Ontario behind Hamilton, but also in Canada. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the thing you have to realize about the Sioux was that it was built around two major mills. It was built around um, the paper mill, which I don't know if the paper mill is uh, still around, but it was built around the steel mill. Um, and, you know, Algoma Steel, their big product is is plates for, for uh, boats, um, for like, you know, seagoing vessels, basically. And they're in a very unique location where they're close to the Minnesota oil f- uh, ore fields, right? So, you know, you get ships like the Edmund Fitzgerald that you know, go across, go across uh, Superior from Minnesota's, uh, um, Minnesota's ore, ore mines to, uh, uh, to, to the Sioux and, and they, um, they, they make, uh, they make plate seal up there. Um, in terms of like uh, the biggest, yeah, I'd say the Sioux is probably the second largest in, in um, steel making area in Canada. Um, you know, if you think about Ontario in general, you've got, um, you have Algoma, you have Defasco, and you got Stelco as the main big three. But then you also have like Gerdau um, and uh, Valbruna, who also uh, make steel, but they make they're more called mini mills, I guess is how you would classify them. Whereas those big three are the um, the integrated steel mills, right? So they take they they will take iron ore and turn it into a finished product, right? Like Algoma makes um, the plates, and uh, they also have um, uh, a strip mill and then you know Tefasco and stelco they they make uh, automotive galve metals right interesting so, and Tefasco the, and stelco are both in hamilton yes so um stelco's primary steel operations are actually down on lake erie and nanakoke oh. um, yeah so they've been slowly moving operations down that way um they they've been closed they closed down the blast furnaces a few years ago um, they have a they have a coke oven still operating in Hamilton, um, but uh, their blast furnace and their uh, basic oxygen furnaces they're all in in the Nanakoke uh, uh, Lake Erie Works. Interesting. I've got a, the, my my podcast guest who I interviewed last night, who is also in Hamilton, by the way, who's a forest technician, talking about invasive species. Uh, he said he went fishing at the mouth of the water outlets of Nanticoke Station. Is that a is that a natural gas or a nuclear plant down there? Um, so it used to be coal, actually. Mm. The Nanticoke Generating Station used to be coal. Um, they, when the I guess it was the previous Liberal government, they. Transi- transitioned the uh, the Ontario grid away from coal to um, fuel sources. Um, actually, decommissioned that, and there is a um, uh, there's a uh, there's a solar plant uh, on the, on that 
on that property now that OPG runs, I think in, uh, they started that a few, maybe five or seven years ago, something like that. No so, way. Holy cow. There's uh, down that way. There's also, um, Imperial oil has a refiner, uh, refinery. So it's, uh, there's a lot of industry down there. Um, but the Nanacoke, um, Nanacoke GS is, uh, is pretty much a solar farm now. It used to be coal oil. Wow, man. Holy cow. I had no idea. That's fascinating. And the, the other two, uh, sort of mini, um, I guess smelters, or I'd forget the term you were using for them. Where are those two guys based? Are they in Quebec or are they also in Ontario? So Valbruna is in Welland, Ontario. Um, and then Gerdau actually has two locations. One is in Cambridge and one is in, uh, uh, Whitby. Gosh. Um, Gerdau mostly makes like merchant bar, like rebar for, uh, for buildings and, uh, uh, concrete reinforcement. Um, and now I think Valbruna makes wire, steel wire. Got it. And is to, to your knowledge, is Ontario, are we a net steel exporter or importer, even with all this capacity? Um, I'm Rough. pretty sure we're, we're net exporter. Uh, we do, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of the steel that we produce is consumed in Ontario. Um, a lot of, uh, construction rebar is, is, uh, goes towards, uh, Ontario construction. A lot of, uh, a lot of um, automotive metal is consumed at, you know, Ford and, and Toyota and Honda and GM, right? So I th I'd say I'd say Ontario is pretty uh, self-sufficient in terms of meeting um, meeting uh, metal and uh, steel demands. And Interesting. Interesting. And, you know, I came across this story about the Algoma plant. I think this was maybe, I honestly came across it first, like about 12 months ago. And there were, there was a whole bunch of reporting in the media, at least that I follow, you know, about, wow, this is so cool. They're moving. So Algoma Steel, you know, big steel producer in Ontario, probably biggest employer in the Sault Ste. Marie area. Mm -hmm. um, they're moving towards an electric arc furnace. And it's, uh, I think you sent to me in the DMs, it's being made by this Italian company named Daniele. Mm -hmm. And that it's going to be powered by gas turbines made by General Electric. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like it's it, basically one of the quotes in one of these articles was that it's it's going to be saving a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so before we get into maybe exactly what that means, like how does it actually work, Nathan? Like in terms of making steel at Algoma Steel, are they're bringing in the iron ore? What are the what are the parts of the process that they need to 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 basically make the finished output. Yeah. So like um pretty much there's I think it's like four major um inputs if you will um that to to make steel uh, you need oxygen, uh, you need natural gas, iron ore, uh coal and limestone um as well as scrap scrap and recycled metals. Um Basically, uh, it starts off with uh, the coke batteries, and so the coke batteries they will um, take the coal uh, and reduce it to uh, what is called coke. And basically, coke is uh, a pure form of carbon um, that is used as a, a fuel in uh, the blast furnaces. Um, so coke ovens um, they produce uh, coke oven gas, uh, and coke oven gas is actually recycled. In uh, the process, they use it um, to maybe uh, heat up um, reheat furnaces or uh, to do um, uh, to generate electricity. Because you can actually, if you mix coke oven gas with natural gas, you can actually burn it as if it's a, a fuel and, and produce electricity. Um, it's actually very common practice in in steel making to uh, use coke oven gas to generate your own electricity. 
Wow. So after, um, after like you get your Coke and your iron ore and your limestone ready, um, it goes into the blast furnace and the primary operation of the blast furnace is to reduce um, the iron out of the iron ore. So iron ore is basically just iron rust, right? So you got your iron and you got your oxygen and um, the blast furnace basically uh, does the reaction that separates iron from the, uh, the oxygen. Uh, and it does that basically by heating it up uh, super hot and then separate um, separate the uh, the iron by drawing uh, separate the iron and the oxygen by drawing the oxygen away uh, to carbon atoms and that produces uh, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Um, once the blast furnace has been uh, once the the reaction has been complete, they'll tap the blast furnace and they'll draw off all of the liquid iron. Um, so the blast furnace is often referred to as iron making. Um, and then from iron making, it goes to uh, steel making. And, and so just so I get straight so far, there's the Coke oven is the step one. And then the mm -hmm. blast furnace is step two. Mm -hmm. And the blast furnace, that's where the iron is actually made through that yep. reaction of the limestone, the iron ore, and then the Coke. Yep. Um, and and then you have this iron, and then this is going into the next step that you're talking about. Yeah. So um, just a note, the the limestone helps to kind of separate the uh, um, the iron uh, from all of the different like uh, impurities like slag. Uh, it's often referred to as flux. Um, so you use flux to kind of make uh, when you heat up metals, flux helps to uh, make it a little more liquid, a little, uh, little more runny. Um, so from iron making, uh, the molten iron, or sometimes you might have uh, sponge iron, it'll, uh, it'll go to um, uh, what, what is common right now is uh, the basic oxygen furnace. And so the basic oxygen furnace will um, mix um, scrap metal, uh, it'll mix um, alloys, and it'll mix that uh, liquid iron um, to, uh, to create steel, right? And so steel is, um, steel is uh, iron and carbon uh, with you know, different metal additives to create, uh, to make certain desirable properties in the metal. Um, and so the, how the blast furnace works is uh, you have um, a oxygen lance that blows oxygen into this vessel where you'll have that scrap metal, the alloys, and the liquid iron. And that will, um, they call it heat, and that basically burns up um, a lot more of the carbon. It'll fuse all of the metals together to create the steel. Um, you also have lime in there to, as a flux. Um, and then what the, the byproduct of the basic oxygen furnace is, um, is actually CO2 and, and carbon dioxide, because you're, you're trying to reduce the uh, carbon content to get, again, the desirable properties of the metal. Is that carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide? Yeah, That's both of them. Yeah. And so that depends on the byproduct of the previous stage number two in the blast. Correct. Room. Yeah. So carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide are both... Um, uh, byproducts of uh, complete and incomplete combustion. So when you're burning, like when you burn a tree, for example, um, you'll you'll likely have incomplete combustion. That's when you get smoke, and so the smoke is like carbon monoxide. Carbon dioxide is is a result of complete combustion. You'll get smoke and uh, um, water vapor from from any hydrogen. 
So, and then once the once the basic oxygen furnace has uh, done its heat, um, they will uh, they'll take the molten metal. Um, they'll do some further refining. Um, maybe they'll add you know they'll do some tests and then they'll add additional um, additives for uh, to get those desirable properties. Uh, but then it'll go into um, the the caster, um, which will either create a slab or a strip, and then it'll go down for further refining. Um, but pretty much that is the primary. How do you make steel in, in a nutshell? Um, you know, uh, I'm sure there's metallurgists out there who will like tell me, you know, you missed a step or something like that. But that's the that's the general gist of it. That's um, awesome, man. So stage four would be the caster where you're actually forming it into the basically the yeah. bulk shape that you need and exactly. that's not necessarily the final shape but that's mm -hmm. the shape that maybe the next step in the industrial chain customers can then shape it or form it from there yeah exactly so like um for example uh um you know you might have a caster that produces uh slabs and the slabs are cut and then they are put through um a different uh milling processes that make it you know the the certain width or the certain depth uh, um, that you're that you're looking for, um, or you might have a continuous caster that goes right into there, and you get right off the the right off of the the caster itself. You might get um, a roll, excuse me, for example. Um, you know, and then you might if you have like a if you're producing rails for like a, a railway uh, line, um, it'll go through like uh, various uh, dies. Um, that will shape it into that shape. Or if you're making like a, an I-beam or an H-beam, it'll have the same kind of die, uh, right? So it's, but but pretty much all steel making um, up until that that caster is uh, pretty much the same. Interesting, man. So you go from the Coke oven, but the Coke oven is really just producing the Coke that you need for stage two, which is the blast furnace, and that's when you're inputting the ore and the coke, uh, and I guess the limestone. Mm -hmm. Wait, not not limestone. Is that is that the term? So limestone is in um, the blast furnace, uh, but then it's further ref uh, then further refined limestone lime is in the the uh, BOF. Got it. So you go so coke furnace. Sorry, coke. Mm -hmm. coke. Coke furnace to the blast furnace yep. to the basic oxygen reactor. Or is it basic oxygen furnace? So um, there's different ways of, of calling it, um, but the general term is is, is steel making, um, right? So you'll take uh, the iron uh, from iron making into into uh, steel making. Um, so for example, you've got uh, there's the uh, basic oxygen furnace. You can call it a BOSP. You could call it a, a KOBM. It's just different um, brand names, if you will, for you know, what OEM designed what, uh, what equipment, right? Got it. Okay. Okay. So like Coke furnace, blast furnace, and then the blast furnace, you're coming out with iron. And then in, in the basic oxygen furnace, you're actually turning that into steel. And then in the yep. cast, you're forming it to different other, usually slab or blooms or, or some sort of raw, um, rough, rough shape kind of a thing. Right. Got and then it'll it. go through know the milling and the the finishing process so like sometimes you might have a pickle line you might have an annealing uh, batch process you might have uh, a temper mill like it's just different ways of of, of treating the the metal to get uh, further um, 
proper desirable properties in the product, right? Like it's just, you know, how do how you treat your 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 raw material to get it to the finished goods, right? So, and wow. why uh, those big three are called integrated steel mills is because they do that primary and finishing, right? Like they take the raw materials and go all the way to a finished good. Whereas some places in in the U.S. they actually don't do that. They'll have like you know just a galve line or uh, which is uh, um, you dip the the metal in in zinc to uh, give it some uh, additional property uh, additional anti corrosion properties. Um, you might have um, uh, you might have the slabs produced in you know one city and then drop labs, you know, four kilometers or, or 40 kilometers away to another city where it's processed into uh, a medium uh, work in progress material, and then you drive it into another location um, to finish it. Uh, but in Canada, it's all done in the same, in, in Hamilton and, and the Sioux, it's all done there. It's not like it's, you know, driving from Detroit to uh, Ohio to, uh, to Indiana to produce some, some metal, right? Interesting, man. Interesting. So there, there are these integrated sites in the Sioux and Hamilton. Um, mm -hmm. So this electric arc furnace then, would that be replacing what stage? So what you just described is how it has traditionally been done yeah. over the last few decades. What is this electric arc furnace replacing in this, in this whole, uh, you know, progression? So the electric, the electric arc furnace actually replaces the, uh, the basic oxygen furnace. Mm. Um, so common common um, misconception is that EAFs are new. Um, Defasco, for example, has had an EAF since 1996. Uh, you know, like they've, but but on a small scale, um, the largest producer of metal in North America is actually a. Um, actually, they only have EAFs, um, but the EAF it basically it takes uh, it removes the um, the oxygen. Um, from the the furnace, and it has electrodes that dip down into uh, the um, the vessel uh, arc, and then that's what melts the uh, uh, the metal. Um, typically, if you don't have like virgin iron coming from a blast furnace, um, it'll be pretty much recycled scrap steel, um, and then you'll add in the the alloys to to get the desirable properties. Um, but what, what, um, yeah, the EAF basically just replaces the, the BOF, right? Exactly. Interesting. So the, so like the, the, the third part of the, uh, the different stages. So is this, um, you're saying if you're using an EAF, you'll use recycled steel and then you're mixing it in with these new alloy alloys instead of having virgin steel, sorry, virgin iron go into the process. Is that, is that what's happening at, cool. uh, at uh, Algoma in the Sioux? So um, you can have recycled steel in a basic oxygen furnace. You're just essentially replacing the, the fuel source. So um, where the fuel source for an, a, a BOF is oxygen, the fuel source for an EAF is electricity. Um, where the uh, carbon, um, where the carbon emission reductions come from is actually in the elimination of the blast furnace and the Coke ovens. Um, there are other technologies that will uh, eliminate the Coke oven and the uh, the blast furnace, but um, you know a, a place like Algoma where they are doing an EAF um, or you know any other steel mill that does uh, EAF technology, um, they are 
essentially recycling the they're just recycling the metal in a um an electric powered furnace interesting man so you could eliminate stages one and two as long as you have enough feedstock of old <laughs> of old yeah is it old steel or old iron i guess it would be old it's steel. old steel yep it's old steel um wow. but you have to remember um uh, you have to consider this the the supply of scrap metal is actually um it's it's limited right mm -hmm. uh you think like what's the life cycle of a car you know how long before a car is actually recycled um how long before a building is torn down and you separate the the um the concrete from the the rebar right like it's it's uh so that that's a challenge is you know is there going to be actually enough scrap metal um scrap steel so steel is like infinitely recyclable um and because it's infinitely recyclable uh you know you can you just take a bunch of scrap and heat it up pound away at it and and you've got you can you know create some sort of a uh a, a stock that you can shape into something right like you know what 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 blacksmiths used to do back in the medieval ages right so yeah um, but the 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 cool thing that uh, all of these decarb projects that um, Algoma and Defasco are doing is they're looking for ways to replace the blast furnace and the coke ovens, mm -hmm. um, and that's done through uh, like a process like direct reduced iron. And basically, what direct reduced iron is going to do is instead of using coke to um, as a uh, and carbon as a um, uh, as the chemical reaction to draw the oxygen um, atom away from the iron uh, atom is uh, using hydrogen and the byproduct is is water right so you use wow. uh, in the in the reaction uh, the iron and the um, uh, oxygen will separate and then the hydrogen will attract the uh, the oxygen uh, atom and produce uh, water as the the byproduct water vapor because it's going to be hot like it is it's going to be a really hot um process but you know you're you're eliminating the coke oven gases and you're eliminating uh blast furnace uh offs wow that's incredible man so if you can get like this green hydrogen or blue hydrogen as they say uh and use that as an input instead you can eliminate the coke furnace and the blast furnace or the coke oven and the blast furnace in in the process yeah theoretically that's the idea <laughs> um but practically uh the supply chain for hydrogen just isn't there um mm -hmm. you know like if you think about like uh the 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 mobility the e-mobility uh transition right like why did electric vehicles make what okay why did tesla uh why was it such a big adapt uh, like why did people adapt to tesla so quickly it was because of the availability of the supercharge network right like you know tesla went through and they in invested in creating this distribution of uh, like a uh, high-speed charger so that you know someone who buys their car isn't like oh well now i can't drive up to sudbury on on the weekend to go to the cottage right like i have to stay within 100 kilometers of my home um you know i make the trip up to the Sioux in in, in my car uh very you know at least four times a year and you know it's it's that was why i decided to go with that car um whereas like hydrogen fuel cell cars where are you going to stop and get hydrogen yeah. my understanding is that there's only one fuel hydrogen fuel station in in ontario and that's near pearson airport Interesting. right 
so it's like where there there's there's this, the the challenge that this hydrogen direct reduced iron is going to is faced with is the supply chain of of um of hydrogen and that's not just you know green steel it's everywhere everywhere else where uh decarb is the the initiative right like that's the challenge with decarb is where do we get where do we get hydrogen from in a low fossil fuel um way and um you know like in in ontario off the top of my head the the most uh the the, the most logical place to get hydrogen is actually in sarnia where you have you know all those chemical producers down there where hydrogen is actually a byproduct of their process yeah um, but the question is how do you get hydrogen to you know hamilton and the sioux in such great quantities that a steel mill could use it for for direct reduce iron yeah um, yeah right? like that's the question like what are you going to do are you going to build pipelines mm-hmm. or are you going to truck it are you going to ship it or are you going to actually build you know green steel places in sarnia close to the supply of hydrogen but that yeah. hydrogen is considered blue hydrogen right because it's not it has a higher quantity of carbon to the the the, the hydrogen that's produced i think it's like per kilogram of hydrogen or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if like, you know, something like the Algoma steel, if at one point, because you're talking about all these issues, you know, with scale and distribution of the technology, um, if something like a, I'm just, you know, uh, uh, hypothesizing here in my brain, if you have like a small nu- uh, modular reactor, like nuclear reactor in Sault Ste. Marie, and if you, I don't know if like uh, separating the atoms in water like an H2O, like, could you actually make hydrogen from the water right there in Lake Huron or Lake Superior? Yeah. And, so and use it on, use it on site kind of situation. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a company in, in Sweden, um, they're producing, uh, a green steel, um, through, uh, hydrogen, green hydrogen that's been produced through electrolysis. Now the problem with electrolysis is it's very electric intensive right yeah. like eafs are electric intensive now you have electrolysis which is electric intensive right so that swedish plant that's being built right next to a to a hydro dam because of the reliable supply of electricity from the hydro dam ah. right so there's it's the development of green steel in ontario is really dependent on the development of the electricity grid as well as the supply of hydrogen interesting um, right like it's it's one of those things and and that's actually a challenge that algoma and defasco with their dri uh projects um with their decar projects are faced with is where are they going to get this hydrogen from mm. um right so it's like they're not going to be able to um they're not going to have you know hydrogen produce steel like as soon as they get it started up because there's no hydrogen for them to actually reliably use um Arsler Middle up in um, uh, Quebec, Cote de Lac or something like that. Uh, they actually ha- ran a successful uh, test pilot of their uh, hydrogen direct reduced iron, uh, but it was only for 24 hours because that's all that they could have for their supply of hydrogen. Interesting, man. Interesting. So that, I think that was, that was last summer, actually. Really? Cool. Yeah, last year they did that. So they had done a test pilot up there. Interesting, man. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Ness, about Quebec because the amount of hydropower, like cheap hydropower they have in Quebec is pretty mind-boggling. And like the amount that they, uh, you know, electricity, hydrogen-powered electricity they export to, I think like New York State and Maine and Ontario, 
It's really interesting. I wonder if the St. Mary's River in Sault Ste. Marie uh, would be like, because I think there's electrical generation there. I'm not, I don't know yeah. how that is. I wonder if that would be enough or not. Um, I can't recall uh, what the, the capacity of that dam is, um, but um, uh, Brookfield Renewables uh, do own and operate a dam on the St. Mary's River on the Canadian side. Um, my understanding is that there's actually a, uh, a U.S. project for a dam or something like that uh, going in on the American side of uh, St. Mary's River. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I haven't seen them with my own eyes, but I think I've seen them on maps. Uh, there's hydro, um, there's uh, wind turbines uh, just north of uh, the city, um, right where the uh, wind comes off of Lake Superior. Um, right. I, be I believe, um, so actually interesting uh, thing that um, Gerdau does in Cambridge is they have, they're right next door to a landfill. So they're actually taking the uh, the off gases from the landfill, upgrading it and uh, burning it in the reheat furnaces, uh, right? So that's that's one you know that's one way of of, uh, of you know capturing uh, capturing um, uh, you know off uh, waste essentially and and using it as uh, an input to a uh, the um, input to the process. Now that's another concern, right? Because you have a lot of these steel mills are using coke oven gases um, and synthetic coke oven gases to uh, produce electricity or to produce heat in, in, uh, in, in boilers and stuff like that. And if you don't have coke ovens, how are you going to produce, like you're gonna have to have more natural gas or find another power source, right? Mm -hmm. So it's there's a it's a delicate balance of uh, energy and um, and and you know your demand of it right like the energy supply and demand is is a really delicate balance. Interesting man and very fascinating the fascinating stuff. So I guess from what you're saying in the Sioux Algoma is going to be using mainly uh, the scrap steel in their electric arc furnaces, and which then would then feed into the casters after that point right still yeah. at that stage would still exist. And then yeah. if, would they keep the, the Coke oven and the blast furnaces around in the advent that the scrap steel supply had a disruption or was insufficient, like in the medium or long-term, do you think, are they going to keep them around so they can switch them on if they need them? So I don't know specifically what Algoma is doing, but there is talk in um, the steel industry on on the American side of the border that uh, you know blast furnaces are are um, they're not obsolete. Like there are alternatives to their technologies uh, through direct reduce iron, but I, I don't I can't I can't see with the existing uh, technology that we have that Algoma or any of the Canadian steel mills would fully do away with their. Uh, um, with their blast furnaces and coke ovens. Um, Stelco, for example, they just put in a new blast furnace, I think within the last 10 years, I believe they just upgraded or at least upgraded their existing um, infrastructure, did a significant overhaul. Um, you're seeing a lot of American producers also doing significant overhauls of the blast furnace. Um, but in terms of Algoma, I, I would be surprised if they didn't at least keep one coke oven and one blast furnace um, at least idle so that if they do have a problem where they don't have a virgin iron supply or they or they need virgin iron, then they would be able to produce it. Interesting, man. Very interesting. 
Um, and then also the case, it's it's gonna it's gonna also gonna be a wait and see in terms of hydrogen availability mm-hmm. and the distribution and when the economies of scale become uh, appropriate for for what these guys are doing. It's really interesting, you know. You think about like you mentioned the wind power at the end of Lake Superior there. I'm sure that'd be a pretty good place for like offshore wind farms or even on the shoreline itself uh, at the end of Lake Superior in terms of the amount of like wind, you know, per day. Um, uh, per square meter or however, you know, they, they measure that. Um, that's really interesting, man. Holy cow. So, so fun fact, my first uh, project out of uh, college was a solar farm up uh, north in Cochrane, Ontario. Cochrane. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. So it was a 40 megawatt solar farm and it was actually put in place to replace a, um, a biofuel. So there is a local paper or, or, or wood mill that would ship the uh, scrap wood to um, to this uh, this plant that would you know burn it as fuel and and, and produce 40 megawatts worth of electricity. Um, that same uh, job that I had, I also was doing wind farms, and um, I think the the there's a, there's a um, so one of the things you have to consider is that when the wind isn't blowing, typically the sun is out. And when the sun isn't out, typically the wind is blowing. So they complement each other. So it's like you got to have a, a good balance um, uh, between, you know, solar and wind. You can't just go full full steam uh, wind and full or full steam solar because, you know, there's times where the wind's not blowing and the, and the sun's not uh, uh, shining, right? Um, but if you can, uh, to your point on the small modular reactors, um, I actually like the idea of small modular reactors, especially up in northern Ontario. Um, you know, the Candu reactor, that is a very safe, um, very safe technology that Ontario, that has been developed in Ontario. Um, great brand name, great brand name. Can-do, right? can-do. <laughs> it's great. It's, um, and, and you know, uh, I think the last time Canada actually, like we actually had a, a nuclear disaster was Chalk River up in like, you know, 1950 or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, I, I do like the idea of small modular reactors and I think small modular reactors would be helpful, um, but you know, not in my, not in my backyardism, right? Like how many people want to put a, uh, put a, a new, are, are willing to have a nuclear reactor put in their, uh, in their backyard. Um, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Yeah, it would be fascinating to do another podcast with you, man, just talking about your thoughts, because you have worked in green tech, about like, what do you actually see on the ground? Because there's so much, it's so easy to muddy the waters, I find with this kind of tech. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many vested interests on all sides. And you see all this stupid, like you see these memes about, you know, solar and 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 wind, uh, you know, memes like, well, what happens if the sun isn't shining, you fucking idiots? That's right. You're going to all starve to death, right? You you see stuff like that. It's like, come on, guys. You know, but but it, it's to hear from someone actually on the ground, you know, it'd be it'd be really interesting to see have that conversation with you, you know, because I think that that would be a whole other podcast that mm-hmm. <laughs> probably. Uh, but, you know, the 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 claim that some of these uh, I guess the PR people for Algoma Steel are making about, hey, these EAFs, I guess there's two of them, and then maybe the second one's going to come online closer to 2030. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on that. The claim that hey, the amount of carbon dioxide reduction 
in terms of emissions that this would take out would be the equivalent to like a million cars on the road over a, a year period. Does that make sense to you? Because you did talk about how carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide are big uh, components of the byproduct, right? All along the chain in steel production. Yeah, I, I, I do. I'm. They've probably done calculations that I can't even begin to to think about. Um, you know, there's like the full cradle the grave life cycle of 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 a product, right? And um, you know, they've probably put a lot more thought into what the actual emission reduction is than than I have. Um, I know. Uh, part of the contingency on them getting the the government funding was what what is their carbon reduction um it it is very possible uh i know like steel mills are pr pretty dirty places and you know um if you can help reduce like the if you don't need coke or if you don't need um uh coal then yeah uh definitely possible because like that's where the main reductions are coming from is um is, is the the blast furnace and the coke ovens right so if you're going down from, you know, having two operational blast furnaces to one, you're still getting a significant reduction, right? So, absolutely. And in terms of like human health, I imagine like the carbon monoxide one, like that's mm -hmm. highly hazardous gas to I think all biotic life, right? Like into any anything any animal that's respiring air, like carbon monoxide is some nasty shit. Obviously, I don't think carbon monoxide is necessarily greenhouse gas, but. Um, like both of those are just, we don't need more of those spewing into the atmosphere at this point, right? Yeah. Um, I think carbon monoxide is the one where it's like the deadly killer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's the one where, where you can't smell it. You can't, uh, you know, you're going to have a headache and feel dizzy and then, you know, you'll, you'll die. Um, it's interesting though, because the, the, the most dangerous, sorry, I dropped my, my thing. Um, the most dangerous uh, like greenhouse gas is actually methane. Um, it, because uh, the reflective property um, of methane is so much higher than than carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide. Um, it's just that calculation to go to you know CO two equivalent is just so much easier. Um, yeah, uh, I, I actually uh, read something where it was like uh, hydro dams. The 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 carbon neutral point is like eighty years. And the reason for it is because one, uh, concrete is really carbon intensive. Like the calcination process of limestone into lime is like the worst emitter. Like if you want to talk about cutting uh, emissions, let's look at how do we how do we capture the carbon uh, the carbon offs from the calcination process of lime and limestone. Uh, but the other contributor to uh, that, you know, eighty year uh, carbon life cycle is actually when you uh, back flood the reservoir behind the dam um all the decaying uh all the decaying um life like the the trees the uh the plants all of that actually when it decays in water it produces methane and uh goes up into the atmosphere fascinating man i hadn't even yeah. thought about that wow the break-even period on like carbon emission or greenhouse gas emissions 80 years for yeah, a for a dam. Yeah, that's wild, man. Oh my god! I was over in Ch living in China when they were constructing the the uh, the Three Gorges Dam over there, which I believe is the biggest dam in the world. You know, on the the Upper Yangtze River, mm -hmm. and it's wild to think about that thing. Uh, but uh, wow, man! You know, and as a fisherman myself, like dams are also fucking terrible for freshwater, you know, aquatic life. It disrupts the, especially the reproduction, you know, the reproductive cycles of so many fish. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's can be extremely deleterious in in that regard as well. And I mean, again, this is a different podcast, but you know, solar and wind with battery storage, mm-hmm. small new, new you know modular nuclear reactors. To me, and again, this is a different podcast, but it sounds like we might be on the same page now. Like that, that's the future. Um, yeah. Some Enviro folks out there are very adamant against nuclear, but I just saw recently there was a, uh, oh God, what's the guy's name? He did a documentary about nuclear. He is an American film director that did like Platoon and Wall Street. His name is escaping Oliver Stone. He did a documentary about nuclear. And basically it's like the safety concerns are really overblown. If you actually look at like the number of people that have died from nuclear over its, its, its lifetime, you know, and considering how reliable and clean it is in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, it's something that we should we need to be talking about more. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, like I kind of mentioned, the the Candu reactor that was developed in Mississauga, um, that is uh, probably one of the safest. But like, you know, I I work in engineering, right? Like we're we're, we're terrified of of safety. Like we're gonna over engineer something um, to the max. And I personally, I would prefer to you know having spending a little extra money for the peace of mind that this reactor is going to be stable and it's not going to, um, you know, pull, uh, cause a significant meltdown or a disaster like, like Fukushima, for example. Um, the, the one thing I, I will say about like nuclear, um, it's interesting to think that there's actually a, a, a safer nuclear reactor than the can do um, in, in a gallium reactor. And basically it's like, Gallium is, I think, the fifth abundant, most abundant um, element on Earth, but don't quote me that on that one. It's safe enough that you can hold it in your hand, and if you have the reaction right, it, it uh, what what you hold in your hand could like power, I think, a hundred homes for a hundred years or something, something excessive like that. But don't quote me. I, I, I'm not. It's been a while since I read about them, but there's like other nuclear technology out there that I think. You know, if if the concerns of your traditional uranium reactor are are so great, you know, let's look at what other technologies are out there. Um, you know, what I'm personally seeing and excited about is actually um, uh, renewable natural gas. Mm. So collecting the methane off of uh, wastewater treatment plants, off of um, uh, landfills, and using that in the industrial processes or even just feeding it back into like an Enbridge network where people can use it to heat their homes. I think that's actually a more realistic, more attainable power source, fuel source than, you know, like the approvals process for a nuclear plant are, you know, they're long, they're drawn out. It's, uh, but it's, it's a matter of public safety. Whereas like, you know, you could probably get a, uh, a waste to energy uh, project up and running within a year, maybe two years, if if everything goes well. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's a really interesting point, man. And I think also if you bottled all the flatulence of vegans out there, because they eat so much fiber, man, they are farters. Oh my god! And I say this as as a former vegan myself. Uh, so I think we should add that to that pipeline of natural gas. Um, <laughs> funny. I saw this thing on Instagram where Bear Grylls was talking about like how he used to be vegan and now he basically only eats steak and he's like yeah I haven't farted in like 10 years <laughs> so. that's fucking awesome I love that guy that's me man I used to yep. be vegan now, now I'm carnivore diet Um, you know I also I've driven an electric car since 2017 uh, the Chevy Bolt 
I've got 150,000 kilometers on that bad boy. I love the car. I wouldn't want to drive across country in it just because it's such a, a slow charging speed compared to the Teslas. Again, mm-hmm. this is a whole other podcast you and I should do just talking about <laughs> you know experienced uh, electric car uh, drivers because all the time, man, I don't know about you. I just had one of my, a family members sit down to me uh, next to me uh, at dinner and literally he went on this rant for like five minutes why he thought electric cars which were such giant pieces of shit. And I was just sitting there, you know, like nodding my head. I'm like, yep, yep, yeah. But he doesn't know that I've been driving an electric car and like 75% of the points he were he was making were complete bullshit, right? And I was just like, oh my God, man. So this- my favorite thing about uh, being an EV charger, uh, an EV driver is when someone starts to have like a, uh, a, a negative opinion towards it, all I do is say, okay, let's go for a drive. I put my foot down and their head is in the back of the seat. And it's like, <laughs> okay, you're, I, I've driven, I've driven, you know, nice, nice Mustangs. My dad had uh, really nice cars. Uh, like he's a mechanic. So he would, you know, come back with like a four GT on his lunch break or something like that from fixing it. So, you know, you'd, you'd get, and like, you know, you'd get the same experience in a or Tesla as you do in a $180,000 GT in terms of that acceleration, um, right? But the the thing um, the the thing I like to brag about is that uh, to go to um, the cottage, uh, it cost me probably $40 in electricity. Um, uh, Tesla recently got approval from Measurement Canada for the, um, uh, to build by the kilowatt hour instead of, uh, uh, instead of by the minute, which 47 cents per kilowatt hour is not a bad deal at all. I know it's four times the average market rate uh, in Ontario, but, you know, whereas where I would be paying $80 to go up uh, on one tank and then $80 on the way back, it's, uh, you know, it's a different, uh, different, different, uh, different trip. Totally different game, man. I spent so little on charging. It's ridiculous because like where my family cottage is from downtown Toronto, it's a 200 kilometer trip. And my oh, my bolt basically has a 400 kilometer range so I can make it just there and back without charging if I left on a, you know, on a full charge. And uh, when you charge at home, it's ridiculously cheap, like when you're not using yep. these external charging systems. And the you're doing it thing- overnight. You're doing yeah. it overnight where it's like, what? what's the time of use rate for overnight? It's like eight cents a kilowatt hour. It's, you know, like it's ridiculous. Yeah. So we, we got to have a conversation on that because there's so much, you know, I think just people don't even know what they're talking about on that topic, you know, man. Uh, But, you know, with electric cars coming back to the Sault Ste. Marie, Algoma steel electric arc, arc furnaces here, you know, we got about five minutes left. Uh, I don't know if you, you know about like the health problems in Sault Ste. Marie, there's this wild narwhal article uh, from about two or three years ago, looking at all the weird and wacky kinds of cancers that people have that live like right near the Algoma Mm -hmm. steel factory in Sault Ste. Marie. And for some reason, it's not super widespread. It's only within a few kilometers of the factory and, uh, or the, or the plant. And it's only on the West side, because I think that's where the prevailing winds tend to blow for some reason. So I forget what it said in the article. I don't think it's obviously, you know, like carbon dioxide that's doing this. I don't think that can have that kind of effect on humans, but there's some weird byproducts in the whole process that are clearly making people sick. And they interviewed families where like three out of the four family members died of leukemia and kidding, including like children and people, you know, people are weird. They continue to live in these neighborhoods. They work at the plant, you know, because they make, you can make a hundred thousand dollars a year and drive a sweet car 
even though there might be some, you know, health risks related. I'm sure there's lots of things, you know, that you can do for Algoma Steel that are very safe, but getting these EAFs online, they're probably going to be reducing some other things, I imagine, in the process. Yeah. It's going to make it a lot healthier for people in, in Sault Ste. Marie. Like, what, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um. So uh, I don't know about the specific health problems up in the Sioux, but like I'm, I'm from Hamilton, uh, born and raised in Hamilton. I, you know, uh, lived in, I grew up in Stony Creek Mountain and growing up, I remember hearing a, a stat that like Stony Creek Mountain was the pediatric cancer hotspot of all of Canada. Wow. Because of the way the winds blew, uh, all the toxins over our, our neighborhood, um, right? And I know uh, they're talking about when uh, DeFasco does their DCAR project, it's supposed to really help clean up the air. And I I remember seeing the Plasti Met fire back in 1997. I was five years old and just seeing that big black plume of cloud and just, you know, the amount of smog advisories from even back then to today is just a whole different uh, cusp. But, uh, you know, Hamilton, we, we do have the same health concerns that 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 Algoma, um, that the neighbors of Algoma up in uh, the Sioux have. Um, I know one place in Hamilton, uh, they're constantly under observation uh, from the Ministry of the Environment for benzene, uh, which is a nasty chemical. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're like, you got to remember, like Hamilton is an industrial hub of, you know, epic proportions, basically. So, um, you know, I'm sure if, if 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 we're having the same health problems, then the Sioux would definitely experience the same things, too, because we've got two steel mills to contend with. Right. Right. Jesus. That's why people from Hamilton are so weird, man. Yep. It's the benzene. I, I genuinely believe that um, my cause of death will be either Alzheimer's because that's what my grandfather had or lung cancer because that's what my other grandfather had. No way. Yeah, because and of being in Hamilton. I think I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get lung cancer. Just from being in Hamilton, it's like smoking a cigarette a day. Holy shit, man. Well, I lived in Beijing, China at the peak of, you know, air apocalypse in China of all the coal burning far, uh, power plants. So maybe we'll be in the same the hosp hospital beds beside <laughs> one another, my friend. That's wild. So were both your grandfathers, did they work for Stelco or DeFasco or were they just residents in other? Um, so uh, grandpa, my dad's dad, he was uh, he was a mechanic um, from Germany. Uh, but he didn't actually work at the any of the steel mills. Um, my mom's father, though, he was in HVAC and he um, worked at, uh, he was a contractor at the steel mills. So he would like go in and do projects and his big thing was asbestos, uh, right? And so asbestos is actually used very commonly um, to insulate stuff. And that's that's what they think contributed to his lung cancer was just the asbestos and everything, so... Jesus Lord, man. Yeah. So another benefit, actually, another benefit of of this new steelmaking technology is that they're not going to be having, uh, if there's asbestos, it's going to be abated, removed, and new technology, the new technology that is asbestos free is going to uh, is going to be used. Would asbestos be in the coke uh, oven or the blast furnace? Or so the asbestos is commonly used as an insulator against heat. Um, so you'll get like a lot of cables and wirings that are actually a, a cable and wiring in any uh, steel process where uh, like old steel process, not new because of new technologies, but um, that like a, a motor might be insulated against the heat using asbestos. Mm. Right. Like it's it's uh, 
old old technology that that's going to be eliminated that'll hopefully also help to clean everything up. Wow, man, that's wild. Well, hopefully for the people of Hamilton and the people of Sault Ste. Marie, you know, this this a lot of this decarbonization stuff, a, a secondary byproduct is you're just reducing all this other, you know, tertiary pollution that yeah. is uh, that is associated with the main, you know, greenhouse gas, I guess the carbon dioxide that they're that they're, you know, concerned about for the climate related things. Um, that's wild, man. You know, I had, I've got some friends to me, I don't know about you. I feel like when the climate debate now, the main sphere is basically arguments for either mitigation versus adaptation. Like there's people that are arguing, you know, you need to stop climate change from happening because the costs are going to be too high on all fronts. And then the adaptation argument is, listen, it's real. It's caused by humans, but we should just spend all of our money on trying to adapt to it and not trying to stop it. And the reason I'm setting up that 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 uh, duality there is because the the number of people who are actual like climate change does not exist and we shouldn't do we should not adapt to it or mitigate it at all. That's really like there's no people talking about that. There's a very small minority of people that are still in that camp, as far as I can tell. And it it blows me away like the comments that I was getting on my TikTok on this story and people you know saying like. Climate change is bullshit, man. It's like we don't. This is just a waste of fucking money. There are a bunch of fucking idiots like putting in, in these electric arc furnaces. And I, I just you know have to say to those individuals, even if you don't believe in climate change, this is still going to benefit. This is still going to be reducing air pollution, right? For for these folks, right? So even even if you take away the whole climate argument, um, it's going to benefit them as a business because EAFs are a, um. If there's a lot less moving parts so operation and maintenance is gonna be a lot cheaper like it's it's a good business decision so even if you just remove it it's not a waste of money right like the people who are saying it's a waste of money are the ones who are just looking at it solely as a oh this is the fight climate change but you know these companies wouldn't have gone through and and, and invested you know billions of dollars i think in total um defasco for their uh for their decarb got like nine nine hundred million from the federal and provincial governments for for decarb right like it's not it's a one is going to create jobs in the local areas like if you look at um, the areas where the steel mills have collapsed like in the states you know they're ghost towns now because the main job like the main job site where you know Yes, you had the direct employees of the steel mill, but then also all the subcontractors, all of the suppliers to those subcontractors, and then all of the people who like cooked and made food for those those all those people. Um, you know, they don't they're out of jobs. There's no economic driver. Um, you know, I think anyone who who is going to say don't don't do EAFs, don't do new technology because it's too expensive for um for the uh uh you know to say it's not worth saving the environment, whatever. I, I think they're very, you know, single-minded, not not considering the full gambit of it. Um, on your point of the duality, um, I I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's I think they it's both. Um, you have to figure out how to adapt to you know new fire seasons. If we cut our emissions today, it's not like it's going to prevent next year's fire season, you know. But we have to still figure out a way to fight climate change in in the Okay, what are we doing so that next year's fire season is less than, you know, doesn't start on on June first and go until mid July kind of a thing? Like, I I just I, I remember um, when when the fire ban started, we were actually uh, in Algonquin Park 
the weekend after. So I think it started on the 1st of June. We were in Algonquin Park June 2nd and 3rd and 4th. And it was like, what are we like, you know, okay. So we brought our, we brought our butane stoves and we cooked, we cooked dehydrated meals, but it was not the same. Camping without a campfire is not the same. And right. Like if, if we don't, yes, we can adapt by buying, you know, a cooking stove or something like that. But do we want to have to adapt to that? Because there's a whole ambiance of of having a campfire that, you know, if climate change continues the way it is, we're probably not. I bet you next year we're going to have a longer fire season. We're, the fire ban will go all of June and all of July. We very well could, my friend. And that would be a tragedy if you can't in the backcountry have a friggin' fire. That's yes. unreal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so I don't think it's I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's we have to do both. Amen. Amen. Could not agree more, my friend. Yes. Well, well, dude, thank you so much. We're coming up right, you. right now on an hour. And I can already think of like two or three other podcasts that I could do with you. I'm going to hit you up maybe in a month or something, you know, about the green love situation. To. And then also, um, what was the other? One? Oh, the, the, the electric car, you know, what is yeah. it like being an electric car driver in the province of Ontario? And then even yeah. all your backcountry adventures, my friend. So yeah. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening to the Wild Ontario podcast. You can follow us on YouTube, um, Wild Ontario podcast. Listen on Spotify and Apple podcast. Please give us a five-star review if you can. Thank you so much to Nate. Got to have him on back soon just to talk electric cars. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Friends, countrymen, Ontarians, may the gods bless you all. <laughs>